Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are four Gospels in our scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each of them tell the account of God's redemption of sinners in Jesus Christ from different angles. God meant it to be so, and so we have it. In Matthew's Gospel, the baptism of Jesus centers on that conversation between John the Baptist and Jesus. I need to be baptized by you, John says, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. We need to do this now, at this particular point in time. This isn't going to be a continual thing, but right now, because all of righteousness, in other words, being made right, being shown to be right, being acquitted, all of our religious service, which is also included in that word righteousness, has to be completed, fulfilled, totaled up, and made obvious in my baptism. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is passively baptized. Luke uses a little-known technique of talking about John the Baptist coming and baptizing in the wilderness, and then goes and talks about John the Baptist being arrested by Herod, and in between writes that when all the people were baptized, Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, had been baptized. Luke emphasizing the fact that while it is indeed John the Baptist that is the mover, the actor, the one through whom God is doing baptisms, it's actually John him, or God himself, who is doing the baptizing. This is the difference between the Western and the Eastern traditions of the church, where in the West we're used to the pastor or the priest or the father saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in the East, the priest says, you are baptized reminding people that it is God, the triune God, the Father who sends his Son who dwells in us by the Spirit that in fact does the baptizing. In John's Gospel, we don't get an actual narrative of Jesus' baptism, but we do get John the Baptist telling us what happened. He is the witness who says, I, I, John, saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Witness is key in John's Gospel. In fact, all of John's Gospel is an answer to the basic question, who do you say that Jesus is? Which is why in John chapter 20, as we sing whenever we do Divine Service 4, and we just sang it this morning, we were reminded that John's Gospel is written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Which brings us to Mark. Mark's account of the baptism is, like everything in Mark, incredibly short and to the point. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. 
and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And off we go to the races. That's it. Just the bare bones, period, the end. And Mark immediately has Jesus off into the wilderness, where, by the way, the entire account of the temptation takes two verses. By John, Mark chapter 1, verse 16, Jesus is calling the disciples. By Mark chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus is already doing his first exorcism. Nonetheless, Mark takes the ink, led by the Spirit, to point out that Jesus was baptized. And what is he doing? In fact, what are all the Gospels doing when they tell us that Jesus went down to the Jordan to see John? to be baptized into a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, he who was born without sin. Well, for Mark, the baptism of Jesus in that one short verse is quite simple. Jesus, in this moment, in the Jordan, is now Israel. And that's it. In that moment, Jesus becomes the entirety of the people of God. He becomes the one who bears the image of God in the world. He becomes the new Adam. He becomes the one who fulfills everything that was spoken about in the Law and the Prophets. He fulfills the Law of Moses. He is the one who lives as a human before God the way God intended. And he has come to do battle. Not against people, but against the real problem, our real enemy, which is the devil and his minions. It is the point of all the Gospels, to a certain extent, that Jesus becomes the new Israel. And they all speak of it, but in different ways, just like they speak of Jesus' baptism from different angles. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' link to Israel is done by way of genealogy which makes perfect sense if you're writing to a Jewish audience who is always thinking about their family tree and their ancestors. That's how Matthew starts. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is Abraham who gives birth to Isaac, who gives birth to Jacob, and so on and so forth, until finally we get to Jesus. Luke connects Jesus to Israel through all those temple rites. You heard one last week on the first Sunday after Christmas. Jesus goes to temple, so that he can be circumcised. He goes to temple so that he can be redeemed as the firstborn. His mother goes so that she can be declared clean. Jesus goes to the temple when he is of the age of bar mitzvah. In fact, Luke is the only gospel that makes that account of Jesus as a tween going to Jerusalem. And of course, John has his prologue, where buried in the prologue are the words, he came to those who were his own and his own did not receive him, Israel. But Mark considers it sufficient to make the point that Jesus is now Israel by recounting his baptism. He went down in the Jordan, he's baptized for the forgiveness of sins, he is anointed by the Spirit, and he goes out to do battle with the devil. Okay. So who is Israel supposed to be? If you ask the average person today about Israel, well, first of all, you have to distinguish between Israel of Scripture and the Israel that is a political state in the Middle East. Not the same thing. 
But even if you just focus on religious Israel, Judaism, and ask people what, what does it mean to be Jewish, you're probably going to get things like, well, they wear big hats. They have long black coats. The women wear wigs. The kids seem to be well-behaved. They go to synagogue. If you were to go back 2,000, 2,200, 2,400 years, even further back to the time of David and ask people, what does it mean to be Israel? They would have talked about the temple. Sacrifices. A lot of dead sheep, a lot of dead goats, a lot of dead pigeons, a lot of dead things, a lot of blood, a lot of burning. Burning this grain, burning that grain. That's what it means to be Israel. But that's not what God intended for Israel. It's not who he meant Israel to be. In Exodus chapter 19, the Lord speaks through Moses and says, You, people gathered here, delivered from slavery in Egypt, shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kind of mixing metaphors there. Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Religion and politics together as one. In Leviticus chapter 19, the Lord is told Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall not be known as the ones who kill pigeons and sheep and goats and sacrifice and go to temple all the time for all these different rituals. The reason why you will have to do those things is because you are not quite yet Israel, as I intend Israel to be. What I want for Israel is to be holy, to be righteous, to be able to stand before me in purity, blameless. The people of Israel were supposed to be different in their behavior towards the peoples of the earth. They were, and I think this is why our lectionary people chose that kind of odd Old Testament lesson from Genesis, to go with the baptism of Jesus. They were meant to be light in the midst of, because of the fall, what was a dark world. In Isaiah chapter 42, God says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. That's who Israel was supposed to be. By their conduct in the world, by the way they lived towards the nations that surrounded them, they were to demonstrate what it meant to be holy, what it meant to be righteous. Micah chapter 6, verse 8 describes what it means to be holy and righteous. Micah first says, you know what God is not happy with? All of the sacrifices. And why would God be happy with all the sacrifices? Every time you have to sacrifice, it's a reminder that you're not holy, that you haven't done what I ask, that you haven't been the people that I want. No, says the Lord through Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? That's what it means to be holy. That's what God wanted for Israel. But Israel became obsessed with itself, with who they were. They were special 
for the sake of being special and forgot the rest of the calling from God. Do you know that it is written in Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This was not something invented by Jesus. When Jesus gets in trouble with the Pharisees, it's because he keeps being Israel in front of people who thought they were Israel but weren't. He kept living before the people, whether Jew or Gentile, the way God desires us to live, instead of the way the Pharisees were obsessed with living. Jesus demonstrated what it meant to be a person of God. Israel was not special for the sake of having rituals in the temple. They were special for the sake of enlightening the world and drawing all people back to God and thus drawing all people back together. And so Jesus goes into the Jordan as the sinless son of God and comes out the other side as the servant of God, as Israel reduced to one, the servant of God, servant of sinners, savior of the world. And he will remind Israel with every step he takes, with every word he speaks, with every miracle that he performs that we will hear about through this epiphany season, that Israel's obsession with the rituals and the temple was beside the point. God didn't rescue Israel from slavery so they could find out how many goats and sheep they could kill on a Sabbath. He rescued them from slavery to witness to others how they could be rescued from sin and evil as well. What does that have to do with us? How many of you are baptized? Guess what? You too are now Israel. You have been baptized into Jesus, into his death and resurrection, so that you too, by the working of the Spirit in your heart, might become a new Israel in the world. You are Israel, not the one with the flag and the border, but the one that is called to be light in the midst of the darkness, the one that is called to walk humbly before your God, to love kindness, and to show mercy. Because the world will not do that. The world does not love kindness. It tramples on it and mocks it. The world does not love mercy. What the world wants is punishment. The world is collectively like that figure in Harry Potter, the caretaker of the castle, who screams out to Dumbledore, I want punishment! And the world does not walk humbly before God. If it walks before God at all, it walks in haughtiness. Hey, God, look at me! Aren't I great? Instead of walking before God and saying, you have shown me undeserved kindness. You showed it to me in the past when you called me out of darkness into your marvelous light. You showed it to me today when you got me here safely through a snowstorm to hear your word once more and to receive your gifts. And you will show me kindness tomorrow in ways that I cannot anticipate. You are Israel. So am I. And this is the year of our being Israel once more in the midst of the people of Montreal, the people of Park Extension, the people of the Eastern Townships, the people of Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu, the people of Notre-Dame-de-Grâce, the people of Westmount, the people even of De Montagne and Vaudreuil-Dorion, even of Dorval. We will be new Israel to them because that is what God is doing in us. 
It's a lot of work for him, but he will not give up. We don't know what God's undeserved kindness will look like tomorrow. I know that Deb, who's not here right now, she's in Ohio with her family, is going to be going overseas the beginning of February to be with her young cousin, 44 years old, who is dying from breast cancer. And she knows that. They are going to be together to rejoice that God has shown them grace. Together. And so, Jesus is Israel reduced to one, that you might be many in a new Israel, in the life here and now and the life of the world to come. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.